you call it trauma. I call it life. I understand what you're saying. If we were looking at your children and they had been through what you had been through, would you still say that's just life? Not at all. And that's the problem with all of us that have been through through anything like that. Hi, I'm Ellen McChrystal. Welcome to The New Mind. Today's guest is Gary Martin. Now, Gary's been a client of mine in the past. Um, As some of you will know, I work broadly in the field of mental health, but also with business leaders, athletes, lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. Now, Gary's got a really interesting story. And what I really want to do today is delve into Gary's story a little bit and to find out how Gary bypassed a lot of those traumas and managed to find himself in the position that he's in now. So um, lots of interesting stuff is going to come out of today's episodes, and a lot of you are going to be able to relate to it, especially if you work in, in a business setting, because really we know that mental health is still not really talked about a lot in the workplace. So hopefully for those of you listening, this is going to help. Now, welcome, Gary. How Hi, are I'm, you today? I'm brilliant, thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. No, you're welcome. Um I know quite a lot about you, Gary, because we've worked together in the past. We have. But um, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is going to be a little bit personal. Um, I know that you're willing to talk about some of your story, but I also know that some of it's going to be a bit difficult. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go back before we go forwards. But before we do that, tell us a little bit, uh, a bit about what you're doing at the moment in terms of work. We know that you're a business leader, um, but what exactly is it that you do? So I'm currently a managing director for an SME, small, medium enterprise. We supply products across the UK. Uh, We manufacture ourselves in the UK. So I'm the managing director for that business. And how long have you been in that position? Uh, Nearly three years now. Okay. So before you were the managing director... What were you doing in terms of work? Were you always working in business? I know that um, you were in the military many, many years ago, but then you've gone from military sort of around, what was it, 15, 16? Uh, joined the army at 17. 17. How long And I left then? at 22. Okay. So from 22 till now, and we're, we're somewhere in our 30s, aren't we, Gary? We won't say exactly how old, but uh, from 22 till now, you've been working towards this position that you're in now. And I know you've got kind of uh, desires to keep pushing forward, but what made you want to go into business? Well, really, it's the sense of purpose and having something to actually work towards greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a sense of purpose and fulfillment really yeah, is what I think a lot of people miss within business and within the, the roles or career path that they're currently taking. And did you have somebody that you were inspired by? Because as people listen to this, uh, this story, um, we're going to find out that actually there wasn't a lot of inspiration around you growing up in terms of success and drive and purpose, all those things you've just spoken about. Yeah. So was there someone in particular that you felt really kind of inspired by and thought, actually, I can I can change the path that I'm on or I can do things differently because I've seen this person do it. What was that moment for you? Well I think if if you pay attention to the people around you when you first come into whatever your first job is, second job, if you pay attention you see people who were once where you were Mm. and you see where they are now. And I'm quite um, curious. Mm. So I question why and how did that person end up where they are within business? Mm. 
And then when you look into that and you realize they started where I am and then their career progression path, mm. the roles that they did, the job titles they held, training and courses that they've attended. So I have been fortunate enough in my career to work for some fairly inspirational leaders who started off in the warehouse and ended up becoming senior executives sitting on the board for multi-billion dollar businesses, mm -hmm. global enterprises. So having the fortunate opportunity to work directly with those sort of people, it does inspire you to think, well, how have they achieved that from mm -hmm. warehouse operative on the shop floor through every possible progression yeah. to yeah. one day sitting in the C-suite, rubbing shoulders with the CEO? Actually, uh, if we go back again, um, you, you, we spoke about the military there. And although that may seem like it's not really linked to what you've said, I remember you telling me once about when you join the army, you see all this, this kind of line of career in front of you. It's laid out in front of you. So in essence, I think at that point in your life, when you were 16, 17, you've got this massive um, opportunity to develop in the army, in the British army. And then you've been able to transfer that learning of look at who's in front of you and where they've been and, and aim towards something. Okay, so let's go all the way back. So we're going to connect the dots as we go through the episode. So we've got Gary MD now looking to keep pushing forward. Prior to that, British Army, but some space in between that we'll cover. And prior to that, childhood. Now, the reason that I brought you on, Gary, is because we look at people that are successful and we look at people that are living quite nice, comfortable lives, family, wife, you know, car, all those things that people think about, um, especially young people. They've got all these goals ahead of them. They want that. They want the 2.4 children. They want the car. They want the house. They want the job. They want the career. And they look at people. And I think what a lot of young people think particularly is, it seems so easy for those people. Like it seems to be just such an easy linear line. And yet here I am, I've got no money, I've got no roof over my head. How am I ever going to get there? And uh, when we started to work together, actually, when we started to look at your history, we started to dig into some of your, your story. It was really, really powerful because you really haven't had, in, in my opinion, a lot of good guidance. I think I referenced the the army there because it, it feels that that was the first time that you saw a line of opportunity in front of you. Prior to that, it was quite a difficult life for you um, from, from what I, I know about you. And I think uh, some of the techniques that we used in therapy and some of the things that we've done together have been quite... Um, interesting for you, haven't they? Because they're not your usual types of therapy. You didn't just come to me and talk and then life was suddenly a lot easier. Um, if only that was the case. I know. It's been a <laughs> lot of work, actually, uh, the work that we did together. And I kind of want to just sort of um, open up this conversation for those people that perhaps don't really know what steps to take next. So let's look at little Gary. So Gary's growing up. Where, where did you grow up, Gary? I grew up in the Midlands. Okay. So you are, uh, are you the youngest of, uh, how many, am, how many yeah. siblings? So I've got three older sisters. Okay. And uh, you have mum and dad. Yes. So tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up. 
Well, looking back, you realize perhaps what you're dealing with within your family home is not what it should be or what everyone around you is dealing with. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was a normal childhood. You know, I don't look upon it as if the the trauma or the environment I was in was negatively impacting me at that time. Mm. It's only as you become a more mature man, you start to realize the life that other people around you had mm. when they were growing up that you start to question your own environment and think, well, maybe that's contributed to certain things I'd like to, to work on or things to improve. And you mentioned there about the stigma around mental health. Mm although you didn't use those words. But for me, that's why I wanted to come on the show. Mm. Because especially in business, there's such a stigma around mental health. Yeah. But everybody's been through something. Everybody's dealing with something. Yeah. And, you know, if you're just finishing school, thinking about, do I go to college? Do I go to university? Do I start an apprenticeship? Do I go and get a job because I want some money? It's a very daunting time in your life. And if you've mm. had trauma prior to that, it can be very, very difficult mm. not to have clarity on what to do. Very true. And especially in your case, um, I'm going to kind of help guide through because I, I know what's probably um, important to, to cover, which is there was a lot of for you not feeling good enough. So when you're talking about being a young person, feeling daunted by the rest of your life in front of you, what do I do? Where do I go? You know, am I ever going to succeed in anything? If you haven't felt good enough to begin with, that's even harder. Now, there's something that you said to me during our therapy, which was um, you felt like your worth was less than a bottle of cider, which for the listeners um, will open up why there was some difficulties for you growing up. So if I may, um, both of your parents had quite significant drink issues and I don't want to kind of tell the story for you, but that bit there where I say that your worth or you felt like your worth was less than a bottle of cider, try and explain a little bit about that for me and what, what that actually means for you. Okay. So. My childhood, I had both my parents were alcoholics, mm-hmm. and anything I needed or wanted as a child, we never had enough to provide for that. Yet every single day, every night, as far back as I can remember, my mom and dad had plenty of cash to go and buy alcohol. Now, we didn't have plenty of cash. I grew up in a, a council home, uh, mom and dad in and out of work. My dad was self employed. So, depending on what business, what clients he was working on, would mean that we either had money or we didn't have money. And I had to fend for myself from a very young age. Mm. Started my first job at, well, I was was doing removals with my dad on his company side of things from the age of about 11 years old, Mm -hmm. but really started working for myself from 13 onwards. But if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have had school uniform. I wouldn't have been able to put shoes on my feet because we didn't have that level of money. So you were earning your own money uh, from from 11, really. But from 13 in particular, you knew that if you're not going out to earn your money, you're not getting your shoes, you're not getting the uniform, you're going to be very different from all the other kids. So really, there was no choice. Yeah, You had to go out and earn money. And I know that there were times when you were actually going to the shop to buy the alcohol for your parents as well. 
And there's one thing that I remember you telling me about, which was opening the cupboards and there was nothing in the cupboards. And you had to, am I right? I think you had to go to the shop to buy the alcohol. There was no food, but that's what they wanted. And that's what you went to to buy. And that's where the feeling of self-worth was aligned and associated with this bottle of cider. There's no food. Nobody cares about me because here I am buying alcohol for them. Now, you said earlier that you didn't really know that that was kind of like a trauma or that was a negative thing at the time because it was normal to you. Absolutely. So it was just everyday life. So let me just touch on that. The price of that cider was £2.39 a bottle. Mm. The fact I remember that today just shows you how much of an imprint it leaves on you from a young age. Yeah. Now, I only realized it was a, a problem, I guess, when I was 12 years old. My mom was drunk. Mm. She fell down the stairs and she broke her neck in three places, two of which were within one millimeter of her spinal cord. Had it have been one millimeter either way, she would have been paralyzed from the neck down. Mm. So I got back from school one day and dad told me, you know, this is what's happened. Your mom's in hospital. We need to go and see her. I seen her fall down the stairs the night before and didn't think anything of it. She fell down the stairs in a heap at the bottom of the stairs. And I, I watched my dad pick her up and take her to bed. Wow. And didn't think anything of that. But then when I realized getting home from school that she's actually broke her neck, could have died, probably should have died, or best case, been paralyzed. And she was so fortunate not to have come away with life debilitating changes. Did that stop her? from drinking it stopped her for a couple of weeks right so she had what was called a halo drilled into her skull i don't know if you've ever seen one but it's essentially Mm. four bolts that they put in front and back and a round frame that extends your neck up off your shoulders and then a, a big chest brace that sits over your shoulders so when i first seen her she was on her back in hospital with that frame on six weeks later she's in the pub drinking with this frame on playing pool you know, showboating there. Very, very strange at 12 years old to be witnessing that. So would you say at that point that she even knew that she had a drink problem? I know that sounds like a crazy question because you think the obvious answer is yes, but had she understood the gravitas of what was happening to her or was she very disassociated? No, not at all. No. She, speaking to my mum now, so my mom has been sober now for over seven years. Right. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Probably 40 years too late. Yeah. But at least she's got to that point in her life. Mm-hmm. And I've been capable of moving beyond the, the resentment I had, the hatred towards my parents, and almost turning it into a positive that it's part of life it's part of the journey you go through every opportunity is something you can learn from but speaking to her now she had no idea a that we as kids not just me my sisters as well could see and witness and relate to what was going on yeah no idea the effect and the impact that has on you does she even remember a lot of the stuff that was happening at the time because I remember you saying actually that there was a, a, a morning or it, no, it was an evening, sorry, it was like nine o'clock on a, on a particular evening and your mum was trying to 
kind of hurry you up to go to school. She thought it was the morning and in fact it was nighttime. So there was obviously a lot of discombobulation (laughs) at the time. Does she remember those things now, now that she's recovery, uh, you know? No, 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 I don't think so. And looking back on that, even at the time, me and my sisters used to laugh. Yeah. We, we thought that was hilarious. You know, Friday night at nine o'clock, your mum trying to round you up to, <laughs> to get ready to go to school. I mean, but, yeah. yeah, I suppose it is quite funny at the time, but actually there's quite a lot of um, sadness in this story as well. I remember you, you saying to me that your mum was the kind of drinker that was that kind of classic alcoholic. Yeah. But your dad seemed to be able to drink in a slightly different way. First of all, I kind of want to understand what that means a little bit for the listeners, but also I want to talk about some of those stories, you walking home from school and seeing your mum and just to give people context to, yes, you were working at 13 or whatever it was um, to earn money, to buy things like a school uniform. No, there wasn't really food in the cupboards because they were always spending it on alcohol, but also they, they were quite different drinkers. And in addition to that, they've got quite different outcomes, haven't they? So uh, talk to me about your dad's drinking a little bit there. I never knew my dad had a problem until maybe a year after realizing my mum had a problem. Right. And I'd never seen my dad drunk. I'd never seen him drunk apart from at Christmas, where we all tend to have a uh, tipple too many. Mm -hmm. So I never thought he had a a drinking problem. And as I said earlier, he was self-employed. And he injured his back whilst at work. So he was off work. That was when we realized that he's got a bit of a problem. So before that, you would say he was a social drinker or was he drinking more than that before that accident? Oh, no. that injury? He was definitely drinking excessively. Mm -hmm. But as a kid growing up, you don't notice these things unless you notice something different. Yeah. And he always seemed sober. Yeah. I knew he would drink a lot. He'd finish. He's what I call a functioning alcoholic. Yes. So he'd work all day and he would work hard, mm-hmm. come home, open a bottle mm. and he'd sit and drink that. And I, I mean a bottle of cider, not you know whiskey or vodka or something. Yeah. That tends to kick in later on in the, uh, yeah. in the process. But I never knew he had an issue until he was off work with this injury. Mm-hmm. I can't speak as to why, but he'd get up and start drinking. And the first time he tried to actually give up drinking. He did it from home on his own with no help because even in his mind, he didn't think he had a problem. Right. And that's where my mum's drinking was more, you could tell that she was drunk. You could tell that she had had too many and we've all been there at some point, Mm. but that was my mum every day. Yeah. She'd wake up in the morning, even she would go to work. So you could argue still functioning but the alcohol affected her differently to how it affected my dad. Because she, she, like you say, she was a drunk. Yes. And what that meant for you was that on occasions, walking home from school, uh, well, you tell the story. So you're walking home from school with your friends. You see this woman uh, and explain a bit further about this woman that you see. So I would see at this point, a stranger, mm. stumbling, walking home, falling over and thinking, what is going on up here? Look at the state of this person. Mm. And as I got closer, I realized it was actually my mom. And we're talking four o'clock in the afternoon. It didn't happen frequently, 
But on the times it did, I'd be walking home with friends from school. It just felt embarrassing yeah. to the point, you know, this is my mom. And were they noticing that, well, they were noticing her as well, weren't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So they knew who my mom was. Yeah. So as we got closer and realized who it was, it was, um, as I say, an, an embarrassing experience. How did you manage that? You know, you're with your friends and obviously at a certain age, it's kind of, especially boys, they can be a bit mean to each other and say horrible things and, and whatever. So how are you managing this kind of moment? Oh my God, this woman's stumbling on it. Maybe she's cut herself or, mm. or whatever. Um, she's my mum and they all know she's my mum. What, what happens to you at that point? What is it a kind of like the ground swallowing you up moment or are you angry? Are you, do you even know what you're feeling? Is it just too quick that, that shame? The sole feeling is probably shame at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You want the world to just, uh, open up the ground and swallow yeah, you up. But yeah. I'd pick my mum up off the floor and literally walk her home put her to bed yeah but you can't get past the feeling that that leaves with you that oh my god that's my mom yeah and don't get me wrong I love my mom looking mm. back now always have but no kid should be dealing with that no between the age of 13 and 16 it just shouldn't be happening and also I think that the thing to say there and I, I often reference this is that the part of our brain that's developing and you know learning how to make good decisions, how to analyze information, how to be logical, it's not fully developed until we're like 21 to 25. So actually everything that's going on in those early years, predominantly naught five or naught seven and then you know between seven and, and 21, that's a really fundamental developmental age. So if you're carrying shame, if you're feeling like a carer, if you're having to earn your own money, um, at that point, your brain is going to be very, very different to a child that's having a, a safe home, you know, what you would consider to be the 2.4 children, having their uniforms washed and, and ironed and having the nice new school jumpers every year and shiny shoes. Your situation at this point is is fundamentally very, very different and quite isolated because it's not the sort of thing you go to school and talk about with your friends. So you accept it to be the norm. You're not really talking about it to anybody, but you must be noticing that you're different to other people. Is that something you can remember at that time? I wouldn't say I noticed I was different to anybody. As I say, growing up is life is what you know it. Your household is what you know of it. So you're not really so it aware. Didn't, it didn't seem different up until the age of 12 when I realized something's not right here with mom. Yeah. But I never really compared whether I'm normal or different to anyone else. You know, it's just the, the environment of growing up, going to school. Yes, it, it had tremendous impact on me through those quite influential years. Mm. Suffered with really debilitating anxiety back mm. then. Depression. It's only now that we actually call it those names. Mm. I didn't have a clue what it was back then. I just knew how I felt. Mm. And it's only now I can look back, I can think, yeah, I, I definitely had severe anxiety from that process that you call it trauma. Yeah. I call it life. But um, <laughs> Well, again, that's because it was your life. So although from a clinical point of view, we'd say that some of these feelings like shame, um, come from that persistent trauma of not being looked after properly, 
not being seen, not being heard, those fundamentals that we need growing up, they just weren't there. Because also, this all, you know, the story continues. So you are seeing your mum out and about, being a little bit drunk is the best way to put it. She was very drunk. And then your dad's drinking gets worse, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So tell me a bit about what happens with your dad. So we know your mum is now in recovery, but like I said, the story is a little bit different with your dad. So tell me a little bit about what happens with your dad. So not long after my mum fell down the stairs is when my dad got injured at work. Mm-hmm. He then tried giving up drinking from home. Up until this point, I didn't realise he had a problem. I knew he drank a lot, but so did a lot of his friends, you know, family. That was, it seemed to me, that was what that generation did yeah. at that time. And it was accepted and it was normal. When he tried to give up drinking from home, the withdrawals that you suffer as an alcohol-dependent alcoholic can be quite severe. Mm. So he'd have the shakes, he would be sick quite severely. And on this occasion, we're sitting watching TV at night and he goes into a brain seizure, which for anyone who's not seen that, it's like a severe epileptic fit Yeah, would be my recollection. Yeah. The eyes rolled back in his head. He's foaming from the mouth. He's convulsing all over the uh, floor, going into like a, a rigid plank and then curling into a ball and convulsing like you would if you were having an epileptic fit. Mm. And I was 13 at this point, seeing that, not having a clue what was going on. So this is because of the withdrawals, is it? This is from him trying to stop drinking at home. Right. So he had this brain seizure. We phoned an ambulance. The ambulance turned up, put him in the back. And my mum and my dad drove off in the ambulance. But I'm left there on my own thinking, what was that? What is going on? And I ran from my home about three and a half miles all the way to the hospital. Wow. To go and find out what was going on. And that's where we realized, yeah, this is this is a lot worse than perhaps as a child you realize at that point. Yeah. And from then it was really a very quick downhill spiral. For your dad? For my dad. So he was in and out of rehab for a number of years. He would go into rehab, he would come home, and he would be what I I always used to say to him. It's like I've got my dad back. Mm. Because that's when you realize the scale of the difference between the alcoholic dad and what I seen as my dad. Yeah. Now, in and out of rehab, but every time he would come home, he'd last a few weeks. And I won't go into all the detail, but essentially the drugs he were was on to help him with the withdrawal symptoms caused him to hallucinate. And some of the hallucinations he had were extremely scary. One of them, I'll tell you this one. One of them was um, he thought that we were being attacked by some sort of army assassins. And he was convinced they were in the house. So he wakes me up, and I'm 15 at this point. He wakes me up. He says, Gary, they're downstairs. I need you to come down. They're trying to kill us. And I thought this was real. Of course. So I'm getting up out of bed, expecting to go and deal with whoever it was that had broke into our house and were trying to kill my mum, my sisters, my dad. And he's screaming at me to do something to this person. And I'm saying, where? I can't see anything. So you are genuinely panicking at this point. This is a genuine, it's really happening in my dad's mind. And, and you, but for me, <laughs> there was no one there. Nothing realized, was happening. Yeah. 
And that's when I realized, okay, the drugs he's on, he's hallucinating. But yeah. they were very, very strange and quite severe hallucinations. Right. And from there, my dad actually went into hospital. He tried giving up on his own at home again, had another seizure. He went into hospital. That night, I went to see him with my cousin, who was more like a brother, grew up with my, my cousin. They did an orally fed liver examination, which is essentially, if you've been an alcoholic, they will check your liver to see if it's damaged beyond the point of repair. Right. If it's past 25% damaged, and don't quote me on these numbers, they may have changed. This is from memory from when I was 16. Yeah. 25% damaged. It's beyond repair. You would need a liver transplant at some point in your life. If it's less than 25, it can self-heal. It will self-recover over time. Right, yeah. Well, that night, I knew something wasn't right. I said to my cousin, something's not right. I think he's gone. In the morning, my uncle's on the phone crying, and I thought, yeah, this doesn't seem right. That night, my dad died from an acute esophageal hemorrhage or an esophageal hemorrhage, where the tube that they put down your throat to stop you choking on your tongue whilst they put the camera down your throat had actually scratched his esophagus. Wow. And he died on his back, heavily sedated that day or that night by drowning on his own blood. And funnily enough, I got his death certificate last week. Oh, wow. Because my nan passed away and she had kept a copy. Right. And... On there, it says he died, number one, the acute esophageal hemorrhage. Number two, severe alcoholism. Right. So alcohol eventually did take my dad when I was 16 years old. I was halfway through doing my GCSEs at that point, and I was also doing the entry exams for joining the military. Wow. So I never really had chance, time, or an understanding of how to process. Yeah. From that. And six months later, I was in the army, surrounded by other men, shall we say, from fairly tough backgrounds. Mm. That tends to be where people, yeah, people end up. It's true. Yeah. I'm getting away from home. Let's join yeah. the army. But yeah. Yeah. And that, that was the last time I spoke about my dad until my wedding. And it was actually when I tried speaking about him at my wedding, I literally broke down in front of all my friends, all my mm. family. And that's when I thought, I need to go and speak to someone just to help me unbox this mm. and come up with a way of managing these feelings that I knew were there, but I'd buried them. They were deep down buried. And yeah. this, this is what I want people to understand. Just because you've been through that sort of trauma, and it, it can be anything, it doesn't mean you're broken. No. It doesn't mean you're any less than anyone else. Yeah. In fact, it's actually your superpower. And the minute you accept that and you realize if you unbox and learn how to deal with that trauma, I don't like calling it trauma because for me, it's just part of everybody's life. We've all been through something. If you learn the coping mechanisms to deal with that, it will absolutely make you a stronger person after. I'm going to ask you a question there, Gary, about this, this thing about trauma before we go further with it, because I, I understand what you're saying. But if we were looking at your children, and they had been through what you had been through, which would be very difficult to imagine because obviously you're their dad. 
But imagine they've gone through something like you have. Would you still say that's just life? Or would you say, actually, looking at my children, I would say that's probably quite traumatic for them to go through. They're just little people. This stuff is really tough. They don't know how tough it is yet, but this is going to come back at some point in their life and they're going to have to deal with this. Would you still categorize it as just life if you're thinking about them? Not at all. No. And that's the problem with all of us that have been through <laughs> yeah. been through anything like that. We like to deflect and we like it's to act like it's nothing. Exactly. You, you, you know, and the reason I bring that up is because we've done a lot of work together in, in the sessions and we'll talk about a little bit about that in a minute. But I know that there's still this protective part of the brain that goes, do you know what? I'm fine because you had to be fine. Because if you weren't fine, if you weren't fine at 13 earning your own money, if you weren't fine when your dad was having hallucinations or, you know, having these seizures, if you weren't fine when you find out that your dad has died, if you weren't fine when your mum is in the street, drunk, falling over, wobbling all over the place and your friends are like, oh, there's your mum. You know, if you weren't fine at those uh, those times, you wouldn't have survived. Um, So you had to be fine. So for you to sort of go, oh, no, it was a terrible life. I think there's a fear that you'll suddenly lose that sense of direction, that sense of purpose and control. So I think that's what a lot of people do. They, they, they're they almost uncomfortable with saying, I've been through some stuff. Hence the reason, uh, having done some work with corporates, knowing that people are very... Um, embarrassed I think to talk about mental health still we're 2023 and I have to explain to people in these situations where I go and do these talks mental health is physical health the brain is linked to the body through 12 cranial nerves this nervous system of yours is going to respond to what the brain does the brain is wired for survival in terms of anxiety like you mentioned there most people would develop those things at a point in their life when they're trying to survive they don't know they're trying to survive but their brain is adapting to those situations now not everybody does go through trauma actually in childhood not everybody does have alcoholic parents losing a parent at 15 16 sexual abuse neglect physical abuse you know uh, poverty not everybody does experience that and it is you know, everyone's story is unique. So although we might have a shared experience with mental health and most people experience stress, of course, and I always say that actually having a perfect life isn't ideal either because you go into adulthood having had no problems and then the minute you step out into the real world, you break a nail, you have a nervous breakdown because you can't cope with it. (laughs) Um, So actually, We all need a balance of life experience, but the the issue with perhaps your story and other people out there that struggle to identify it as trauma is that your life was definitely not in balance and your brain will have adapted to the lack of balance, the lack of nurture, the lack of safety, and it would have had to adapt to the grief, the shame. And so obviously that creates a very different outcome. Not always a bad thing because, as you say, you can use that pain for power and it can become a superpower. But not everybody, not everybody does that with their pain. So that's what makes you a little bit different. So um, I kind of want to highlight highlight that bit because I think it's really important that we don't minimize what you went through, even though that's your coping mechanism, because essentially it, it is quite a big deal. Um, and I say this to you a lot and I, I've said it previously to you a lot. So fast forward a little bit, you, you, your wedding, you do the speech, 
you realize, oh my gosh, this is spilling out of me and I'm really upset and I need to do something about it. So you go to seek therapy, you see a therapist. I think you told me you saw someone, it wasn't quite for you for whatever reason and you persisted, which is great. And the reason I highlight that bit is because sometimes people will go to a therapist and they'll go, oh gosh, this is not for me. I don't like this. It's not working for me. I'm not getting anything out of it. And they give up. Not Gary Martin. Gary Martin says, it's not working for me, but I really want to heal this. I really want to overcome whatever it is that's holding me back. And you persevered. Now that perseverance is really, really important. And we ended up here together. So what made you persevere? Because that is a key moment. If you have an experience that isn't, let's say, enlightening or positive or whatever it is that someone's looking for. And, you know, if you have that experience and you're not getting anything out of it, very, very easy to say, it's not for me, it didn't work, I tried my best, oh well, and crack on. What made you different? At that time, I was working in a business where we were going through accelerated growth. Mm -hmm. So I was recruiting a lot of people, responsible for a lot of people. And it was early in my leadership experience and I started to realize that some of my own limiting beliefs were really anchoring me back you know people talk about imposter syndrome really imposter syndrome is these anchors of things that have happened in your life yeah holding you back and saying well you're not good enough to be doing this yeah because you're relating it and associating it back to said trauma earlier in your life And I'm quite curious, so I wanted to be able to learn how to open that up, how to deal with that. I'm a firm believer that leadership is about first understanding how to lead the self Mm -hmm. and understanding your emotional responses to certain situations. The further you progress in your career, the problems that you deal with or the challenges that you face, the consequences of the decisions you make are far more severe than as a a junior person, a junior manager or a senior manager. As you move into, you know, being responsible for the business, if you've got these limiting beliefs or these emotional responses getting in the way, it's definitely something I would advise anybody who wants to progress in their career to try and unbox, learn how to manage yourself before you start trying to manage other people. Key point. And and not only that, um, you know, I'm going to plug myself here, but I did a contributing piece in the Times about CEOs and mental health. And, you know, a lot of that was really focused on the isolation at the top, you know, because once you're the top of the chain, you don't have those mates in the canteen that you meet up with, you know, for a coffee or, you know, a fag or a vape or whatever it is that people do in their break. You don't have that camaraderie anymore because you're the senior person. And I think from that perspective, if you aren't dealing with limiting beliefs, if you're not dealing with emotional upset, if you're not dealing with mental health issues, you're not being a role model either. I think if you want a successful, profitable workforce, addressing the underlying issues in your team, which a lot of that will be mental health. And and let's not forget that if you are stressed or if your team are stressed, the pressure on them in terms of internally cortisol response 
how that creates the acid, the inflammation, how the immune system is now struggling to work as effectively, which means more colds, more flus, more viruses, more long-term health issues for people. What happens is they go off sick more and you lose more money and you're less effective as a workforce. So actually you have to be that role model. And actually at the top, that, that can be an isolating and scary, scary place. So uh, one question I get asked a lot is, okay, so what's the business leader supposed to do? And I'm like, get a therapist. Don't wait until you're on your knees. You know, work on yourself. Uh, be be accountable for yourself because at that level, it, it really doesn't take much. You know, if you've got a young family, you've got a mortgage, you've got things that you've got to take care of outside of work. Perhaps your work life balance isn't always where it should be because you know that that leadership role can be very very demanding it doesn't take much to tip you over the edge, especially if you're carrying extra stuff from the past. So there was something in you, uh, an emotional intelligence that knew, even if it's not been great the first time, I'm going to go back because it is my duty and you were being accountable. And that's why you continue to push forward. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's something I try to say to the managers that I'm fortunate enough now to work with. Yeah. That you need to hold yourself accountable first. Yeah. So going through any sort of trauma in your life, if you relate that to business, problems happen all the time. Yeah. You're always faced with some sort of challenge. And until you look in the mirror and accept that it's on you to do something about that, mm -hmm. you're passing responsibility to someone else. Yeah. Well, my dad's no longer here, so I can't really pass him the book. No. So I, I really had to sit and soul search and think, I can spend my time blaming the situation and I was a kid and they were my parents. It should have been different. Well, it wasn't. So it's on me to try to do something about it. And I knew it was holding me back and I wanted to progress as a leader and progress my career as I, as I still do now. What, what, what was it about um, leadership? So I'm, I'm assuming that there's something ingrained in the, in the British Army that, you know, makes you strive, persevere and, and all of that. So did the British Army and that experience play a part, do you think, in that mindset of wanting to be a leader? Because we said early on, didn't we, like you went into the, the army and I, and I spoke about this path is now in front of you. Like there's opportunity that had never been there before. Yeah. Um, however, you had a great work ethic already because you had to have a great work ethic. So. You, you join the army and you see all these opportunities ahead of you. So are they actually physically laid out in front of you, like on a piece of paper so you can see that where you can go? Yeah, this, this has been brilliant for me. And anybody sitting, looking at their life, looking at their career and thinking, what do I do? Mm. The army, when you first join, they give you one sheet of paper and it lists every single rank in the British army. Mm -hmm. Next to that, it has the salary of that rank. In today's money, obviously with inflation, yeah, that's going to change over time. But as a young seventeen-year-old man looking at this list, of course, I went straight to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Where could I possibly be? And the money was unbelievable. You, I would never would have fathomed that at that point in my life. Yeah. And then next to that, it's got the timeline of when to expect to be within that rank. Right. It's and I've used that in my life and in my career ever since because. No one anywhere has ever given me that sort of structure. So let's put that into the context of 
the civilian corporate world. You might have a desire to be, you know, a managing director or a CEO or a certain role within a field. You might be working in engineering or finance or sales, whatever field you're in. If you've got an idea or a vision of where you want to be long term, yeah, map that out for yourself. You can jump on LinkedIn. You can type in the job titles of what it is you want to achieve in 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years time. Yeah. Look at those people already in those positions today. Yeah. And work backwards. Have a look at their career path. What job titles did they hold? What companies did they work for? Have they listed any courses that they've done? That's what it's about in terms of holding yourself accountable. Yeah. You're in charge of your own career. Yeah. Maybe you need a little bit of guidance on how to do it and link that back to mental health. Mm-hmm. We're all in charge of our own mental health. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to call it mental fitness. Yeah. Because we can all relate to going to the gym. Yes. If you want to get physically fit and healthy, we can all relate to going to the gym. And there's absolutely no shame, no stigma around that whatsoever. Indeed. I dream of a world where going to see a therapist going to get help to support the brain, the mind, and dealing with not, not trauma, not necessarily things that are wrong, but things that you want to improve within yourself yeah, yeah. is just an accepted part of life as it would be to say, I'm just off to the gym. That's right. I always say you don't have to have had trauma to have therapy because sometimes, not at all. It, like I said before, you could have had a perfect life, right? Nothing's gone wrong. And because of that, you're not able to cope with things when they do go wrong. So sometimes it's just about learning the tools that are relative to your experience. And on that note, so we go to the army, we've got this stretch ahead of us, really motivating for you, that structure, really something you've never had before, um, although you would have created your own structure with work or whatever. And then, interestingly, you uh, leave the army. what was the, the thinking behind that? A lot of things happen in the army that you are told you wear the green suit, suck it up and get on with it. Yeah. And a, f- a few things happened. There's one thing. I was in Kosovo on mm. a, an operational tour in Kosovo. My mom was going through a bad time at that point. I think um, I'd already spoken to my CO. And because one of the officers couldn't go home when he wanted to, he banned everyone else from going home at all. Right. Just out of spite because he couldn't, so no one else could. Right. So that was one thing. Mm. Um, I trained to be a commando in the army. So you go and you serve with the Royal Marines. You go through the commando training course at Limston. I finished that course and I was due to be posted to go and serve with the Marines. But someone who sits behind a desk saw my name on a piece of paper, decided we're not going to send you there. We're going to send you to a parachute regiment instead. Mm-hmm. The, the paras and the uh, Marines are like rivals, arch enemies. Oh, okay. it, it's a bit like Manchester City, Man United, yeah. to put it in football yeah. context. So I earned the right to, to wear a dagger, which is a commando in the army, and get sent to a parachute regiment. So I was already on the back foot. Yeah. And I thought, well, I've just spent six months training, doing this course for someone to send me to the opposite side. Yeah. And I thought, how am I going to get 
where I want to be when I'm constantly being controlled by someone else. Mm. And at the time I had a partner and you either have the army life or you have a family life. Right. You can't have both. Right. It just doesn't work because you spend in a two year period, you'll spend 18 months of that away working in some of the uh, not so nice places to be in the world. Mm -hmm. So you made a choice. You took control. Yes. And that, that was probably quite a, a big moment for you, really, because you had this sheet of paper with all these things that you could achieve. You're like, yes, got all this structure. I'm going to be earning this much money in this much time. And then you actually go, do you know what? I've changed my mind because I want to be in control of my own destiny. So you leave the British Army. What happens next? That's when I was probably in the same situation as most people leaving school or education right now. Yeah. I didn't have a clue what to do. And this is the issue, isn't it? It's like once you leave the army, going into what everybody would say, Civvy Street is now just this open wound. (laughs) Yeah. And what do you do with that? How old were you at the time? You were still quite young, weren't you? I was 22 when I left the army. So you, in my book, like no disrespect to any 22 year olds, but still really very early on in your life, quite probably emotionally not very mature, still got lots to learn, not a lot of experience of life apart from home and army. And we know that home was challenging. Army was obviously equally challenging in different ways. Um, massive drink culture in the army as well. So Absolutely. I'd imagine that that in, in itself was interesting. So we're in Civvy Street. What the hell are we doing next? And And so where do you go from there? I actually sat down and thought, what did they do with the army? Mm-hmm. And that bit of paper I was talking about yeah. was invaluable. So I... I looked at potential career paths, given what I'd learned in the army. I was, I was actually a mechanic in the army. So qualified engineer. Yeah. Do I want to go down that career path? Yeah. And I just started searching different career options, looking up people online, looking at different companies, and still didn't have a clue what to do or where to go. So I decided to become a personal trainer because it aligned nicely with, you know, the physical fitness of the army, yeah. working with people. And yeah, that wasn't for me. Yeah. No matter what you do as a personal trainer, you end up counting people's reps. And I got, yeah. I got bored of it very, very quickly. Yeah. And then got into sales. Right. And so that's this is really where I fell into sales as a lot of people do. Mm. But it's such a good area to gain experience from a business perspective because everything's selling. Yeah. You know, you've got to sell a plan to your boss, sell a strategy to the board. You've got to sell an idea, negotiating. All of it comes back to selling. Yeah. And that's when I started to map out the career and look at, okay, I'm entry-level sales now. I'm a field sales rep. What does this look like in 20 years? Mm. Then you see sales manager sales director and you realize a lot of people who work in sales actually move on to become managing director c-suite executive sometimes even become ceo yeah because they've got that commercial acumen Mm. that is required within business and an understanding of every level really or you know of that business so so that's interesting um 
because it, it feels like you've never really given up when something's not worked out, be it the army, be it the personal training business, you've just gone, let me try something new. And so that, that, that curiosity that you mentioned earlier has kind of been that, that part of you that is the superpower because you've got this pain, it's made you really resilient, but it's also made you strive for something better. Uh, were you aware of that? Were you aware that you were striving for something better than what you'd had? You were trying to be something better than what you'd been given. Was that a conscious awareness or is that something that you now see looking back? I see it now looking back mm. more so than I did at that point. Yeah. But I think because at that time in my career, I was very curious. I, I wanted to understand why certain people were in certain roles. You know, what were their behaviors like? How did they act? How did they interact with their teams, with their boss? Yeah. So I was always observing, always trying to listen and learn. Yeah. And as I said at the start of this episode, I was fortunate enough to work for global companies and be in direct contact with people that sat on the board. Yeah. Launching new products into new markets across Europe. For me, that was an accelerant in terms of career development. But I looked at that and thought, well, how has he achieved that? So I had that inherent curiosity to then try and look into that and think, well, if he's done that, who else has done that? Yeah. What do those career paths look like? What do I need to learn? Mm. And that's really where I uncovered I probably need to work on myself a bit before trying to move into management and try to lead anybody because leadership is about yourself mm. you don't need a job title to be a leader in fact i've worked for some yes. very very poor leaders that have yeah. very big job titles and yeah. you think the title's not really what makes anybody a leader mentality so it was again that that curiosity of why do certain people make it we all look at success why do they make it to a level where it would be deemed successful yes but success is on the individual and it's open to perception. And it's what we were saying at the very beginning, actually, isn't it? Is that like the point of this is that there's going to be lots of people that are not talking about their their journey or their story or some of the things that they might have previously been embarrassed about, you know, um, or, or held shame over. And actually, it's really interesting because one of the things that I think has happened to a lot of people that have experienced trauma is that they become curious because they haven't had the role models in their homes um, particularly if it's been childhood trauma and uh, around parenting and family and stuff they haven't had that so they've got to work it out by themselves and that does give you that curiosity and as long as it's channeled in the right way because obviously curiosity can take you down lots of different naughty paths as well but mm -hmm. if it's channeled in the right way and and, and that's something that I, I recall you saying you you had this kind of relationship business relationship with with a particular guy who was quite a wealthy guy he was at the top of the chain in the c-suite and um you were quite curious about i i guess that the way that he was earning so much money, but also it, it inspired you to take further action in terms of your career development. So first of all, you did an MBA, didn't you? Which is like a, would you explain what that is? It's a master's degree in business. Okay. Prior to that, what were your formal qualifications? GCSEs. And what, what were they like? <laughs> to be honest, my GCSEs were actually okay. Not too bad. You were all right. They were all C and above. Yeah. But I dropped out of school at 15. 
Yeah. I didn't really go to school in year 10 and 11 as it is in England. Yeah. I kind of went when I could be bothered. Yeah, but you still had that result at GCSE level. Yeah, so long story short, I was trying to get in the army and they told me I need English, maths and science, C and above to do the job I wanted to do. Right. At this point, I spoke to my science and English teacher and said, I've not done any coursework over the last two years. Can I still get a C or a above? They said, no, your coursework is 25% of the final grade. Right. The best you can do now is a D. Uh-oh. So I panicked and I spent six weeks working and I take my hat off to my teachers. Knowing the sort of kid I was growing up, bit of a rogue, not the best. I wouldn't have wanted wanted to teach me, but anyway. <laughs> um, they worked with me one-on-one for the next six weeks to do two years worth of coursework Wow! in six weeks. Wow. And I managed to get it all done. Wow. And then fortunately managed to get my GCSEs done, albeit my dad died halfway through doing my GCSEs. But that's why, I mean, I can't recall you telling me season above, although you probably have before, but with your dad dying at that point, that's incredible. Really? So you already have, you obviously, ha- you do have a certain amount of intelligence to be able, yes, you've worked hard, crammed it all in and so on. But I think ultimately you have to have a fairly good level of academic intelligence to be able to do that with all of that going on in your life. And then you think, do you know what, I'm going to finish the job now. I'm going to go and do an MBA, a master's in business. And uh, you, you you do that under quite, you've got two small children at that point, haven't you? You've got a full-time job. You're restructuring a business from what I can remember or trying to do your best with whatever was going on there, which Mm -hmm. was pretty intense by the sounds of it. And you're doing this master's as well, all at the same time. So the reason I referenced that, the chaos and the stress that you were dealt with in your early years uh, actually had made you quite resilient to chaos and stress. So when it came to later on and you were deciding, do you know what? I want to really work on me now and be the best version that I can. And, you know, I'm, I want to be like this guy that's got millions. I want to be like him just because I can, because I, I know it's in me. I know it's in me to be like this guy. So I'm going to do everything I can. So because you knew you'd gone through loads of stress before, this wasn't going to be easy, but you've got that muscle memory, haven't you? That I can do this. So although I'm not saying that, oh, let's all put ourselves through really highly stressful situations on purpose that are going to be damaging or whatever, the truth is that those experiences enabled you to understand what it takes to push through the hard times, including being in the army in Kosovo and all of that. So you're now super resilient. You smash through that, that master's and then you find yourself in a leadership role And you, uh, as you said before, you then go, okay, if I'm going to lead and I'm going to be the best leader and not just have the title, but actually live and breathe that role, I have to sort myself out. So we then start to work together at some point. And had you ever used any of the techniques? So I'm referencing in particular EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Take a breath. (laughs) Um, And clinical hypnotherapy 
and some of the coaching and some of the, the talking therapy. So out of those, what had you experienced before? What were you used to? What were you a little bit like, oh my gosh, this woman's a bit crazy. She talked about moving my eyes and reprocessing my memories. What a load of rubbish. What, what was your kind of experience before that point? Nothing at all. Ah. So I, I'm the typical person within business who sees all that as a stigma. I don't need none of that. That's for someone else. Yeah. But the minute you realize what benefit you could take away from that, and if you want to improve yourself, let's not call you a psychotherapist. Okay. Let's call, <laughs> let's call you a corporate leadership coach. Okay. The two are almost one in the same. Yeah. It's just you're qualified to look at it from a different perspective yeah. to perhaps a leadership coach. Yes. But having done both, yeah. there are so many areas of that that overlap. Yes, there are. Yeah. But I had no idea what the process looked like. Mm-hmm. I had the typical stereotypical perception and view of what therapy looks like. Yeah. But it was completely different. Mm. I tried working with someone else. It didn't really work. It was, we just didn't have that sort of trust or connection. And when I first came to see you, it was actually, you know, prior to that. So I think I was still doing my MBA when I come to see you. Yeah. I think looking at it before you do it, it's daunting. Yes. You don't know what it's going to involve. You don't really want to talk about life and what's happened in the past and where you are today Mm. you don't want to open up to a stranger Mm. but in reality it's sitting talking as we're sitting talking now there's no difference yeah the techniques that you employ and i'm sure i'm sure other therapists out there also employ i'd never heard of emdr and even when you mentioned it and said would you be willing to try this first thing i did was google that (laughs) yeah what is emdr and (laughs) you start looking at that and you realize, well, that's the sort of technique I actually need. Yes. You know, you're, you're re- revisiting a specific element of trauma yeah. or a memory. Yeah. And you're using eye movement, which completely blows my mind, by the way. Yeah. To look at the meaning you're currently associating with that trauma or that memory and then covering it with something completely different. Yeah. And we talked about shame earlier. Yeah. So my whole life, right up until that point, I lived with such shame, anger, resentment towards my parents and an embarrassment that I shouldn't have had to deal with or carry. Yeah. And when we did that, within one session, all of that disappeared. Yeah. And it was an unbelievable experience. Yeah. I'd recommend anybody who wants to work on themselves, you don't need to call it therapy. Mm. You're just trying to improve yourself as a person. Yeah. Go and see someone that works in talking therapies, EMDR, hypnotherapy. Mm. You'll be surprised with, you know, how enlightening it is. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't really understand the brain, the mind. Yeah. The connection between the brain, the mind and the body. Yeah. A lot of people understand diet and health and fitness. Yes. Let's open the box and start exploring how the mind mm. controls and links into all of that. Mm. And You're right. And I think, uh, you know, I do do mindset coaching as part of the process. And I think the thing is with you is that 
you came in, you told me a bit of your history and I was very aware of the fact that you needed a very integrated approach. And this is something that's really important because you've had a very varied life. So you're used to, I guess, merging parts of yourself and working in a kind of, I used this word earlier, but discombobulated way. Like you've had so many experiences that I think if we'd have just sat and validated your emotions, you'd have probably been bored in about five minutes. So you needed something to work with, I think. Mm. And I think that's that's important because, again, understanding that there's a solution, and it's not all solution-focused, obviously, because there is a certain element of making sure that you realize that, yeah, based on your experiences, this is fairly normal. I've worked with this before. And, you know, there is kind of like a, a, a structure. But the eye movement thing, just for people that don't know, is based on REM as you know, Gary, because we've done it, but it's REM, eye movement, which when we go into a deep sleep, we reach about 15% of REM. When we're in the REM, we are storing information. Now, the problem is with trauma or stress or even drinking alcohol is that we don't reach good REM sleep after something that's made us feel quite hypervigilant or has been quite scary or whatever. And also, if the brain perceives something to be so threatening that we need to remember it then what happens is the brain stores it kind of freezes it in a place where it could be very useful to us in case that potential threat comes back again so we stay stuck in the physical as well as mental response to trauma so eye movement mimicking rem and you can do that with eyes as well as tapping because we've done both haven't we we do right to left right to left right to left as we're using the protocol which i won't bore people with now and then using cognitive interweaves, which is where we we take one part of the memory that was perhaps very distressing and we bring something in, a thought or a feeling or something that, that can be very helpful in managing that memory. So uh, then you've got your hypnotherapy that works on the subconscious mind, 95% of what we think is unconscious thinking and automatic. And then, of course, there's the planning and the talking and the kind of making sure you're super aware of what's going on for yourself. So I went to do a corporate thing yesterday and I talked a lot about this, what I've just said there. And it was interesting because a few people like, do you know what? I had a light bulb moment because I've never looked at it like that before. You hear words like anxiety and depression. People align with those diagnoses. They become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And often if you align with a diagnosis, and you become the diagnosis, you're less likely to persevere and strive and and, and use that pain for power. Mm. And so one of the things that's interesting is that you didn't really get any support or help throughout your entire life. You didn't have a diagnosis. In fact, you didn't really have a guide. You, um, despite everything, managed to carve out a structure for yourself. And what you did later on when you realized, here I am, I'm about to like manage all of these people or I am managing all of these people already. I want to be the best leader I can be. I'm going to do something about it now. And actually, I've never given anyone a label. I might say, look, I think you're struggling with this, this or this. But you don't need a label. You need the solution. Exactly. And you need the right solution for you. And so in 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 doing all of that, in it, not just the therapy, but you know all of the things that you've done, what's kind of like the greatest gift you can pay forward with with everything you've done with everything you've learned be it through life be it through therapy be it through work experience what is it that you you want to give back what is the gift that you now have that you can use for good that's partly why i'm still striving to to learn to grow to develop myself Mm. because for me the money 
the job title, the materialistic things mean absolutely nothing. Mm. I've come from nothing. I know what that feels like. And it's not much different to those that have something. Yeah. Unless within your mind, you feel a sense of purpose, you experience and feel a sense of fulfillment, mm. and you're working towards something that takes you out of your own mind. And yeah. for me, that is working with other people in business, helping other people see that they can go on a career journey and a career path, but they have to take ownership of that. Yeah. It's not up to me to pull them along mm. into roles that they don't want to be doing. It's yeah. up to them to have an idea of where they want to be, a vision for mm. the future. Mm. I can help facilitate and show and guide, but I can't drag them along. And that's really what I love. So paying it forward for me is how can I help as many people as possible who want to progress in, in their career? Yeah. Achieve things that right now perhaps they think that they can't. Yeah. When they absolutely can if they've got the the drive, they've got the idea of where they're going and they're willing to put the work in because there's no quick fix. No, there isn't. And I suppose you've done it the hard way. So you can really, you can really demonstrate, look, it doesn't matter. Like you don't have to have all A stars. You don't have to have that university degree just yet. You don't have to know the right people even. You just mm. have to have that vision. And, and that's really important, Gary, because you'll know from some of the stuff that we've done together, the visuals that we use whether it be in clinical hypnotherapy, whether it be in EMDR or, you know, just day to day, we can use our imagination really, really positively if we want to. We can create those visuals of what we want and who we want to be and what that looks like. And do you remember one of the, the EMDR sessions we did not so long ago where I got you to imagine what it would be not only to see what was in front of you at the next stage of your career, but also for, for what it would look like for other people to look at you, what it would feel like to be in that dream position, how you would feel from an emotional point of view, from a mental point of view, what you're seeing, what people are looking at. And, and that is really a, a motivator, isn't it? Because if you repeat that over and over again, repetition is recognition, you're wiring your brain through that. You're creating a circuit and a sequence through that. You're creating a language inside your own mind. You're creating a belief, actually, that it's possible. So you talking about the vision and, and supporting people to do that, I think that is essential. So what's your vision for your future now? I'm still learning. Yeah. You know, I look at what I'm doing now and where I am now, and I love what I do. Mm. And I love the people I work with, mm. but I'm still on the same journey as everyone else. I'm still that 12 year old boy, <laughs> still trying to deal with my own emotions, trying to understand and learn coping mechanisms to be able to manage myself. Yeah. But the future really for me, long term is C-suite executive. Yeah. For no other reason than the fact that you are capable of impacting more people positively mm -hmm. from that position. And something you've often said to me, which I think is really interesting, is that the, the age that you want to be when you get there, and it's a really important age, isn't it, for a reason. So the age you are now is 30-something, and you want to get there by what, what age have you given yourself? 43. And why 43? <laughs> <laughs> because that's the age that my dad died. So. 
that's partly what drives me. And talking about that executive we were talking about earlier, he was 43 as well. Oh, wow. So I had a direct association to look at that and think, well, he's there. Yeah. Had a fantastic career. Is the sort of leader I aspire to be. Yeah. I've not worked for many like that. Mm. There's probably three in my career that I can put in that bracket. Yeah. And he's the same age my dad was. Yeah. When my dad was, you know, on his deathbed. And actually, you know, as we listened to your story earlier on, and you kind of, you kind of forget that, that the child who's, you know, 16 or whatever, his dad is, is going to be in that age bracket because you're a man talking about the story. I think most people picture an older person, but your dad was just 43. And that must be a challenge in itself when you think about, you know, you're not far off that now. Um, it must be challenging to know that he was so young when he died. Yeah. And that's obviously got to be a, I would imagine, a factor in you always pushing forward, like living life to the full. I do try, but none of us are perfect. You no. Know, I've, I've learned that fact, but it's only now looking back that you think 43 is no age for anybody no. to die. No. I mean, I'm going to overtake that yeah. very, very soon. Yeah. And I still feel like I'm 19, 20. I know, I know, I know. So 43 is no age, but, no. but that's life. It does give you these challenges to try and overcome. And mm. I think if you learn with the right mechanisms of how to cope with these things, mm. you accept complete responsibility rather than projecting to other people yeah. that it's their fault. Yeah. If you accept ownership of it, mm-hmm. you give yourself the power to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, and it's a good place to round up really, but was, I mean, we spoke about your sheet of paper from the army and we obviously know that before that there was a lack of structure. So if you could give someone a top tip, be it that they're, I don't know, 22, 32 even, you know, starting a bit later out on or, or even in a similar position to you now, how would you say to start the next part of the journey? So if you are, I don't know, middle management or something, or if you're just leaving school, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's all relative. You know, the next part of your journey, what would you say how to start that? Because you mentioned all these things like researching and looking at what other people are doing and where they'd been before they got to where they are. Mm. Um, but where did where would you say you would start now if you were looking at planning for the next stage? First thing I'll say to that is, Not everybody wants a career path. Not everyone wants to climb a career ladder. Very true. And that is absolutely fine. You might be in a job that you're happy, you're fulfilled. I remember meeting someone who was in a job that I started doing, and he'd been doing it 20 years, Mm -hmm. just working in a warehouse. Yeah. And he was still doing it. Yeah. But he absolutely loved it and built a property business on the side that he wouldn't have been able to do unless he was doing that job. So there is no set in stone career path. No. And there's nothing wrong with where you are today if that's where you want to stay. What I would say to those who want to progress into leadership, into senior management, directorship and beyond is first learn how to lead yourself Mm. from an emotional intelligence perspective Learn to control your own ego, Mm. the emotional part of yourself. Yeah. Sit down and have a think about long-term where you actually want to be Mm -hmm. and 
with Google these days, you can map that out. You can even use AI tools that are yeah. out there to map that out for you. Yeah. Have a look at what skills, what qualifications, what experience people in those roles are already doing. Mm. And have that belief in yourself that, you know, no matter what you've been through in life, as long as you're willing to meet that head on, yeah, deal with the pain of having to unbox that trauma and really deal with it, process it, mm. go and see someone who specializes in that as mm. you would if you wanted to get fit and you go and see a PT yeah. at the gym. Yeah. There is no difference. Yeah, There's no stigma. We've all got something we would like to work on. Yeah, sure. And believe in yourself. You can go out there, you can do it, but you've got to have an idea where you want to get to, then you can plan how you're going to get there by looking at other people who are already yeah. in that position. Which is exactly what you did. You used other people as a motivator and then you kind of, because you, you, you talk about belief in yourself and I totally agree, but actually you can't necessarily believe in yourself until you can see that somebody else has done it before you unless you've had that role model. So yeah. that's where you're saying, isn't it? Look for those people that inspire you, whether it's someone on the telly, whether it's someone, you know, even gamers. Some of these gamers are making insane money. I know. It's not an easy thing to get into, but again, you can look towards the the, the mindset rather than the actual, okay, I might not be a multi-million million gamer, multi-million pound dollar, whatever gamer, but I can use a similar mindset to get to what's realistic for me or what's what I want to do um so first of all thank you for doing this because you've shared a lot of uh, very personal information which I think is really important actually because although this is obviously me talking to someone in the corporate world the reason that I, I want to do that is because I know that people in the corporate world are still there is movement but there's not a lot of honest, frank conversations happening. And I think authenticity is key. Before we finish, and this is the last question, do you feel uncomfortable at all? Because I know a lot of people say, you know, CEOs and business leaders, they're not going to talk about this stuff because there is a stigma attached to it. Do you feel that at all having this conversation? Of course I do. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be authentic to sit here and say, having this conversation with you, it's going to go in the public domain. Yeah. How is that going to reflect on me from a business perspective? Yeah. None of us know where we're going to go. We have an idea of the path. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. But none of us know where we will go. But I'm willing to do this because of the journey that I've been on. Yeah. I've never spoke about any of this before. Yeah. Openly. We worked together for over 12 months probably. Yeah. yeah. To get to the point where I'm happy to sit here and have that conversation. Yeah. And I just hope someone else sees that and thinks, well, if they're willing to do that, yeah. why can't I? And why that, can't I go and have that conversation with someone who yeah. specializes in this? Yeah. And it is breaking the stigma slowly but surely. And, you know, there is power in that. But also, I think even if someone who's already fairly high up listens to this and says, you know what? I really respect that guy because he's gone out there, clearly not an easy thing to talk about, to pay something forward. And I think I'd get a good response to my story. And that's where we start to see the culture change. That's where we start to see the cycle change. Because once you realize that mental health is physical health and physical health is mental health and there's no differentiation and, and, and also things like, you know, if someone's got asthma, they'll quite happily talk about taking an inhaler. Or if someone's got diabetes, they're quite happy to tell you they've got diabetes. 
So it's no different. You know, the brain is an organ, just like the lungs, just like the liver, just like the pancreas. These are just organs in our body and we need to see them as equal in order to have these conversations. So I appreciate it. I know it wouldn't have been easy. And it is the first business person on the podcast. And I'm hoping that that's a trend because I think it's really important to keep that going and to allow people in the corporate world to hear that this is this is just like you say although you disassociated a little bit from the trauma everybody's got something and it's really important to to have the conversation so thank you absolutely not a problem thanks for having me on you're welcome it's a pleasure thank you gary 